Good evening and welcome to um, the Hong Kong Lecture Theatre at the London School of Economics in the Clement House building. So it's my pleasure, as uh, my, my name is David Webb, I, um, technically I am a professor of finance. Uh, I got one of those when they were easier to get, and these days they wouldn't hire me. But I'm now Pro-Director Planning and Resources at the school and Chief Financial Officer. Um, so we have a very good finance department here at the LSE. It's got great faculty, a great administration and outstanding students. So we're very proud of it. Um, it's actually quite a rare event for one of our professors to give an inaugural lecture, but I'm delighted that Daniel Paravasini has, uh, has agreed to give one because it's very important that uh, our faculty explain to broader audiences, quite a youthful one in this particular occasion, uh, what their work is about at a general level. And um, today's lecture has got a very interesting title. Daniel is a corporate finance economist, an empirical corporate finance economist, done a lot of work in banking, credit markets and so on, uh, getting a deep understanding using the best econometric methods of what's happening in certain very interesting uh, market environments using interesting data sets. Today is actually quite an unusual uh, title of a talk from a finance uh, professor which shows the breadth and depth of Daniel's um, research interests. I mean, Daniel, I should say, was educated in Venezuela with a BA and an MBA. He was a PhD from, uh, from MIT and uh, he uh, uh, was previously on the faculty at Columbia University in New York. Uh, today, though, he's going to talk about culture discrimination and, uh, discrimination and economic exchange. Now he's going to talk for about 40 minutes and then we'll take some questions and I'll chair those in a fairly relaxed kind of way. It's a relaxed event this. Um, but as you can see, for those of you that like to use Twitter, I don't know how to use Twitter but apparently young people do, uh, there's a hashtag for Twitter users which is this hash LSE culture. And I guess you just, as our director Craig Calhoun once did using Twitter in the APRC, the most important meeting of the LSE, because I can't believe I'm trapped in this very boring APRC meeting at the LSE, the previous director. Uh, we'll hope we've got better things to say than that about Daniel's lecture. So, without more ado, I'd just like to say it's my great pleasure to introduce Daniel Paravasini uh, to talk about uh, this topic today. And as I say, we'll take some questions a bit later on. I'll go and sit there for 40 minutes and come up when you've uh, said enough. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the introduction, David. So um, 
so indeed this is a uh, this is a I am uh, a professor of uh, the Department of Finance and uh, and my general research topics are credit markets and uh, once in a while uh, in general I'm interested in uh, studying the factors that determine the the evolution flow and outcomes in credit markets and uh, hopefully by the end of this uh, of less, this lecture I'll convince you that that culture is is one of those factors that determine outcomes in in, in credit markets uh, but be, but to do that uh, I I'm going to basically follow a relatively long motivation I'm only going to talk about the, the only paper of my own that I'm going to talk about is going to be that one but leading to why you want to add try to answer that question, the, the, you need to understand uh, the literature that comes before. And uh, most of the literature on culture uh, is, is not on credit markets, so we're going to be looking at examples of, of research, uh, asking questions related to other uh, topics, um, going through growth, uh, sports, uh, etc. Okay? So... So they, just to go way, way back to the initial motivation for why we think, might think this, this, uh, this is a, an, an idea that's worth exploring, the, the notion that, that culture may have important consequence for economic development uh, goes way back in history in, in social sciences. Uh, and Weber, the, one of the fa most famous examples is, uh, is Weber's uh, work at the beginning of the 19th century where he argued that, that Puritan ethics shaped the development of capitalism. And, he, and his idea or his argument is, is very straightforward. People of certain religious beliefs uh, are more inclined towards hard work, productive investment, and capital accumulation. And all these elements are elements that are necessary ingredients for economic, and economic development and growth and for the, the, you know, the development of capitalism. Um, and uh, the only very recently, compared to you know this original idea, uh, the literature in economics uh, has begun attempting to test whether indeed culture affects economic exchange and and through which mechanism. Okay. So to give you an early example, and uh, and the, the the year on this publication tells you early means actually fairly recently relative to when the original original ideas behind this are are uh, were you know first put forth. It's a paper by Barrow and McCleary uh, titled Religion and Economic Growth, where the authors simply run cross-sectional and panel regressions of country growth uh, as a left-hand side variable uh, and uh, put religious beliefs, attendance at religious services and other cultural factors related to religion uh, as the right. And, uh, and they conclude that, that economic growth responds positively uh, to the extent of religious beliefs yeah, notab notably those in hell and heaven, uh, but negatively to church attendance. They conclude that growth depends on the extent of believing relative to the extent of belonging. Now, these correlations are suggestive, and, uh, and, uh, and they're inter very interesting, but, but they hardly represent proof that, that religious beliefs affect growth. If you go back to the, to the Weber example, the, it could be that the Protestant ethic uh, make, makes people work harder. And uh, uh, so anyone that becomes a Protestant, you know, subsequently starts working harder. But it could also be that simply that hardworking people are more likely to become Protestant and there's, there's no impact of becoming a Protestant on behavior. 
And the distinction between these two stories is crucial because in one, religion affects behavior. In the other one, people have, they're, they're going to behave the way they're going to behave, but, but you, you know, might choose to become of a certain religion or not. Um, and in the second story, the, 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 your religious beliefs are a sideshow for economic growth, might be important for you, but they're a sideshow for economic growth. Okay? So the, the search for a counterfactual, how would have people behaved in the, if they had different beliefs in, the, in this example, are going to be a common theme behind the work that I'm going to discuss, and it's going to be leading to uh, the paper that of my own that I'm going to present. Okay? So what's today's lecture about, to reiterate? I'm going to try to uh, answer the question of whether cultural traits between transacting parties, uh, broadly understood as language, religious beliefs, ethnicity, affect the quantity and the quality of, of the interaction. But also, underlying the discussion is going to be how, how can you do to basically answer such a question empirically in a, in a, in a, in a reasonably uh, convincing manner. Okay? As I said, correlations are suggestive, but, but not necessarily uh, uh, provide evidence of this causal link between culture and, uh, and outcomes. And I'm going to start then with, a, a, this obviously is not going to be a deep survey of the literature. Uh, I'm going to look at, uh, provide you with several snapshots of recent work aimed at addressing questions that are related to this one. Uh, and then they're going to go serve as a motivation to the final paper we're going to talk about, which is entitled Cultural Proximity and Loan Outcomes. Uh, it's with uh, uh, Ray Fisman at Boston University and Vikram Vig at London Business School. Okay? Um, so let's, let's, let's get started. Uh, I, want to, I want to start with a uh, with, uh, a not so early paper, but but still uh, an influence uh, the, the a paper that 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 is 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 after the the, the same question, uh, and uh, but it has some interesting elements that that I'm going to be using later. So it's important to to present. So this is a paper by Giso, Sapienza, and Singales in 2009, and they're after the question of whether cultural biases affect economic exchange. In particular, they're going to use trust as a measure of culture. Okay? And uh, they, start, they start the paper by surveying about 1,000 managers, uh, managing companies under 500 employees from five major European community countries, Great Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. So they were asked to score fellow managers of different countries on the basis of their trustworthiness. Uh, and their responses are summarized in the table that, that you see above in the slide. Uh, the way to read this table is row by row. You basically, if the first line tells you when British managers were asked to evaluate to rank their fellow European managers, they, they ranked British managers first, German second, Spanish third, France fourth, Italians last. Okay? So that's, that's what this, this table represents. And this table gives you several interesting stylized facts. The first one comes from just basically comparing columns. The columns tell you that, that there are, independently on who you ask, there are systematic differences in how different managers or different cultures, cultures are perceived. For example, in, in, in the two highlighted columns, the German managers are systematically perceived as very, being very trustworthy, while Italian managers are systematically perceived as being very difficult to trust, okay? at least last in the last in the ranking. 
this is a ranking. It doesn't tell you anything about the level of trust, but, but it's a ranking. Okay? So uh, first observation, systematic differences in, in the general trust wor- perceived trustworthiness uh, across, different, uh, across different cultures, if you want to call them culture. The second uh, stylized fact that's, that's, that's salient from this table comes from looking at the diagonal. The diagonal tells you how managers see themselves relative to you know, other managers from their own country relative to how other managers see them. And, uh, and here, by staring at this diagonal uh, long enough, you realize that there is somewhat suggesting of a home country bias, that, that everybody ranks fellow um, countrymen managers better than managers from other countries rank themselves. You can let, let's do the column for the British. The British rank themselves as the most trustworthy, um, uh, while every other country ranks them below that. So the, the French rank them fourth, German second, Italian third, Spanish second. Uh, look at the, Ita- the Italian column, similar story. Everybody ranks Italians last, except for Italians that, you know, they rank themselves fourth. You can't be worse than the Spaniards, right? So, so there seems to be a home country bias. The, the, there's, this, there's this propensity to, to like people or to find people like you, uh, in this case, the, from your own country, uh, as more trustworthy than people from other places. Um, the final uh, stylized fact that you can draw just from, this is even more difficult to see, but I'll give you an example, uh, is the idea that there, are, there, there exists some match-specific attitudes uh, that are reciprocal. Uh, for example, you can see that the, the, the French uh, rank the, that's the second row, French rank the British uh, worse than everybody else, Okay, does. So the British rank themselves first, but the French have this kind of negative view in relative terms uh, from the British perspective. But exactly the same is true from the British relative to the, to, to the French. They, the, the British rank the French with the worst ranking relative to, compared to all the others as well. It tied with the Spanish, but, but the worst. And uh, this type of reciprocal uh, match-specific attitude, uh, there's some additional anecdotal evidence that comes from the, this uh, uh, often cited quote from the Duke of Wellington that we have, we the British, uh, have always been, uh, we are, and we, I hope that we will always be the tested in France. Okay? Now the question is, how systematic are these bilateral match-specific attitudes? Uh, what determines them? And what are their economic consequences? Okay? And uh, in the, the, what we want, of course, by, by doing a study like this, of studying uh, the bilateral uh, attitudes, uh, we want to distinguish them from the country-specific component of trust. So, for example, the, the stylized fact that suggests that Germans are more trustworthy uh, uh, from the bilateral ones that, that the British and the French seem to mutually mistrust each other. Okay? And the way to do this empirically is, is, is by decomposing, uh, if you see the bottom uh, uh, row of the slide, the, if you think of a trust of a, as a bilateral measure, there's a trust that, that people from country I feel for people in country J, you can decompose that into a country of destination fixed effect. So it's basically on average how, the, how much people trust people of different countries. And the, uh, that's going to capture the common view about how trustworthy the Germans, the Italian, the French are. 
Okay? Uh, then you have a country of origin fixed effect. This is basically the person doing the trusting. And, uh, and there could be systematic differences in that too. The, per, the, 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 the difference can come from how trusting people of a certain culture are. Uh, but it could also come just simply for the different ways in which different people answer to, to, to this question or they understand it. Okay? And then the residual, when you do this composition, the residual is going to give you this measure of bilateral trust that we want to explore as well. So to begin, in the, so the, the paper I, I mentioned, the Giso Sapienza and Singales paper, they, they perform, perform this, this fixed effect as composition using data from Eurobarometer. Um, Eurobarometer basically surveys uh, individuals in 17 countries, 1,000 individuals per country, and asks them the following question. Uh, how, much do you, how much trust do you have in people from, from various countries? For each of these, please tell me uh, whether you have a lot of trust, some trust, not very much trust, or no trust at all. So now it's not just a ranking, now you're making a level statement on how much you trust people. Okay? When they do the fixed effect decomposition, what this plot is, these two plots are showing you the distribution of the two fixed effects. Okay, the first one to the left has the country of origin fixed effect. This is how much how trusting people of different countries are uh, relative to relative to each other. The baseline comparison this is all relative to to, to Ireland uh, for for some reason. Uh, the, the what you see is that. Sweden, Finland, Denmark are at the top. These are more trusting countries in the sense that they assign people from all countries relatively high levels of trust. Um, in the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Italy, Portugal, and Greece, which assign everybody super low scores. Okay? Uh, this is how trusting people are, the, effects of the origin uh, fixed effect. The destination fixed effect is on the second, uh, the second plot, um, also relative to Ireland. Uh, but strikingly, the ordering is almost identical. The Swedish, Norway, Denmark, uh, are the Nordic countries are on the top. These are the countries that are trusted the most, uh, on average, by all other countries. And in the bottom, you have Portugal, Greece, Italy, uh, which are the countries that are, whose people are trusted less by people from other countries. Okay? Um, so these are the systematic differences on the trusting and the trust-ted uh, dimensions. And, uh, and the, these, these fixed effects explain about 64% of the total variation in trust. Um, the, the, the next question is, well, what explains the other part of the variation, the match-specific variation that the fixed effects cannot explain? And the way to do this is just simply estimate basically the same equation that we had before, where you have trust as a left-hand side variable, you have the trust and the trusted fixed effects in there, and then you put a bunch of right-hand side variables to see what this uh, residual component of trust is correlated with. And what are these X variables? They are common language, geographical distance, years at war, genetic and somatic distance. Okay? A table like this comes out, but you won't be able to read that. Let me give you the summary. The summary is that bilateral trust is positively associated with religious similarity and, uh, and with linguistic common roots. And, uh, and it's negatively associated with fractions of year at war, a measure between a year 1000 and 1970, somatic distance, which is kind of a measure uh, uh, that, that accounts for uh, height, hair pigmentation, and cephalic index, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, I think it's the shape of your, of your head, literally. Um, and difference in GDP per capita. So... 
it's just telling you that you know the least the you know the least my head looks like some other guy's head. You know we you, we trust each other less apparently, or more if we we look alike. Um, so these are again correlations, but but they're suggestive that that these that they, the there seems to be some underlying characteristics of the of each of these cultures uh, that that put, that have predictive power for how much uh, they trust each other. Then the next question is, does bilateral trust predict economic exchange, uh, in particular exports, uh, because that you need measures of bilateral uh, trade, and exports give you the perfect uh, measure of that, and the exercise is going to be the same. You have bilateral trade as a left-hand side, and you're trying to explain it with trust after you take out the country of origin and the country of destination fixed effects. Okay? And uh, this, is, this is a version of the, of the commonly used gravity equation in trade economics, but augmented with this trust variable and with the, with the fixed effects that I mentioned before. And when you do this, uh, again, big table with lots of numbers, but the, the key point that's worth uh, emphasizing here is that, is that in the top row, all those numbers are positive. So this is basically what's the correlation between bilateral trade and bilateral trust, and the correlation is positive, okay? And um, now, this is, again, these are super interesting correlations, but they do not provide, that represent proof that trust affects exchange. Uh, it could be that, that trade breeds trust. So it could be that through trading, and as a consequence of trading, people come to trust each other, uh, it could be that bilateral trust captures the effect of, of, of unobserved variables that also affect trade. For example, the existence of, of uh, established trading outputs, uh, outposts in the past. Um, and even if we take, if, we, if, we, if we're willing to, yeah, let's say, accept the, the argument that, that it's cultural traits that are affecting uh, trade, the, it's still impossible to determine whether it's, it's trust or uh, other cultural determinants of trust, like commonality of religion or the shape of the head, which are affecting uh, trade. Okay? So, so the, 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 the question, the rest of the papers I'm going to talk about are, are basically trying to deal with this particular problem, how to construct a counterfactual to estimate the measure of culture on, on, on economic exchange. Okay, so what do you, what do you in, in a, the, the, of course, the first question you want to, have, want to ask yourself is what do you need uh, to, to measure such an effect? The, ideally, you would like to, to have individuals performing the same transaction again and again with diff, people with different cultures and be able to f measure <coughs> the outcome of those transactions when you exchange with a person that's closer to you culturally with a person that's farther to you culturally, okay? Um, of course, the, the, that's very difficult to produce uh, in a laboratory or even in real life. So we, we tend to, in, in economics, we tend to rely on natural experiments, uh, which is basically uh, a, a, a summary way of describing institutional settings that provide variation that we can use for constructing the counterfactual. In this particular case, it's variation in the matching between the transacting parties in a in order to construct a counterfactual. And some of the cleanest examples of, 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 this, of, of, uh, of this approach come from, come from sports. 
And, uh, and uh, the, in the, examples, uh, the, ex the example I'm going to, to, to present, it's basically the, the, I'm going to look at the matching between judges in sporting events and, uh, and, and players. Uh, judges are randomly assigned to matches um, or assigned in a predetermined way that has nothing to do with the match itself. Um, and the same player is matched to many judges because the same players play many, many games. Uh, at the same time, every judge uh, is matched many times with many players. So you can do the same trick that we did before for taking out uh, trusting and trusted fix effects, uh, country fix effects. We can do the same thing with all the judges and all the players in a setting like this when you have many data for many games. Okay? It's not an economic transaction, and that's a, a weakness, but it, it, allow, it will allow us to measure whether there is discrimination. Uh, in this setting. And by discrimination, as I, not that I've switched from talking about culture to talking about discrimination, but discrimination, the way we define in economics, is just simply differential treatment of two individuals that have the same productivity due to differences in their gender, ethnicity, or religion. And, uh, and it's precisely because there's differential treatment, uh, we're looking for the potential causes of this differential treatment, understanding uh, whether there is discrimination or not, the tools for understanding whether there is discrimination or not are the same tools that we're going to use later uh, to a certain degree to, uh, to, to answer the question I, that I started to pose. So let's jump into one paper. There's, there are several papers with, on this, with this tone. This, this paper uh, is entitled Strike 3, Discrimination Incentives and Evaluation by Parsons, Suleiman, Yates, and Hammermesh. And um, this, they use data from from pitches. So basically, it's, they have data on three and a half million uh, pitches in, in major league baseball from 2004 and 2008. For those of you not 100% acquainted with baseball, a pitcher throws a ball at a catcher, a batter stands in between, and it's to hit that, the ball with a bat. Okay? Um, and uh, the, they're going to look at four ethnicities, white, Hispanic, black, or Asian. And they're going to focus on called strikes. When the pitcher throws a ball, the batter doesn't, doesn't touch the ball with the batter, doesn't swing, actually, at all. They, there's an umpire, a judge, that has to make the determination whether it was a good throw or a bad throw. And a good throw is just a, a throw that's more or less centered around you know, uh, the home plate and a certain height. Uh, and it's a very fussy boundary, and, uh, and it's, if you smack it right in the middle, it's very likely that's going to be a strike. So it's going to, if you want, uh, a good throw from the point of view of the pitcher. And the, more, the farther away you are from the center, the more likely it's going to be not called a strike, uh, so not in favor of the, of the pitcher. Okay? Um, and what they find, um, and again, in these three million pitches, the, the umpires are allocated in a predetermined way to games. Uh, you can take out umpire and pitcher fix effects because umpires and, 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 and pitchers just meet many times uh, in, in, in many, over many, many games over these years. Uh, and what they find is that strikes are called less often if the umpire and the pitcher don't match race and ethnicity. Okay? So if I'm a Hispanic pitcher, and, the, and the, the umpire, which is standing there behind, behind me, looking at where the ball, uh, but sorry, not behind me, behind the, behind the, the, the catcher, seeing whether the ball hit in the right place, um, I, I am just much more likely to, to, 
to be to have my throws not being called strikes, so my call, the, the, my throws be, being called against me. Okay. Um, so this is in a way confirms in a in a setting in which we can believe that indeed the it is it is the only reason why my there's a higher percentage of my pitches are being called the wrong way uh, against me. It's because I'm Hispanic and not because I'm less proficient or I'm throwing different balls, etc. Okay. Now, what this paper can also do several other things. One interesting fact about, about baseball stadiums is that some of them use computerized cameras uh, to evaluate umpires. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the finding that I just described reverses when the umpires are monitored uh, playing in, 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 uh, in, in stadiums that have these computerized cameras. On this plot, I'm just showing you the results for minority pitchers. And so minority pitchers, uh, the, the, on, the, on, the, on the vertical axis, you have a measure of the called strike percentage, which percentage of the strikes that were called are called in my favor of the pitcher. And what you can see is that in non-Quest Tech stadiums, so in stadiums where there's no camera system to evaluate the pitchers, the, 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 there's many more, so there's a percentage of, of, uh, of calls in my favor is higher when the empire is of my same ethnicity. Okay? And uh, so, and again, this is because of the way umpires and players are matched, this is, this is exclusively because of I'm, I'm Hispanic and not because... Uh, anything else? Okay. If you see the, the difference in the in the percentage call and the, and the call strike percentages in the stadiums where where there are cameras to monitor the to monitor the, the umpires, the results are exactly the opposite. Okay. So so the 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 when umpires know they're being monitored, they change their behavior, and this is exactly the same set of umpires, exactly the same set of of players, just playing in a different stadium, and one that, that now has a camera in which your performance is exposed to evaluated. So what this, what this suggests is in a, true in a very specific setting, but indeed the, the, these biases do respond to incentives. You put a high price of behaving in a, or a high cost of behaving in a biased way, people are going to try to correct the behavior. What's interesting about this fact is that it's not obvious, it's not easy to just turn off your bias. You can try to compensate it, and, and in this case, you know, they, it go all the way to transform it into a bias against people that look like you. Okay? The, another question that, that they can uh, attempt to answer in this setting is whether umpire bias affects pitcher behavior. And this is going to turn out to be extremely important in, if you extrapolate to other settings. So the idea is the following. The... The, and that plot shows you kind of the area, more or less, where pitches fall. Uh, if, you, if you throw a ball that, that lands in the black area, uh, they call it the inside area, the probability that it's going to be called in your favor is very high. Okay? It's over 80%. Uh, it's very clear to, to see that it landed where it had to land. The umpire has very little leeway of calling it a bad ball. It's going to typically call it a good ball. Okay? Then if the balls that fall outside uh, the, the black and the red areas, uh, that's called the outside area, if a ball lands there, the probability of being called good for the pitcher is less than 5%. Okay? So when you're very far away from the target, it's very like, unlikely that the ball is going to be called uh, a good one. When the balls that arrive in the edge, in that red uh, ellipse, ellipses that you see there, the, the, the probability of being called 
in favor of the pitcher is about 40%. That's the area, and those edges of the area is where the, 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 the umpire has the most discretion of where to call it in one direction or, or another, okay? Even if they're monitored, right? Now, for the, for the, for the pitcher, the, the pitchers have, have a choice of where to throw, and everything else equal, when they throw balls in the edge of the area, these balls are harder to hit by the, by the batter. So everything else being equal, the, 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 uh, a, a pitcher would like to throw all the balls around there. You have to randomize, but, but because that's the name of this game. Uh, but these balls are, are harder to hit. The cost of doing that is that the ball can be called against you if the pitcher doesn't, doesn't hit it. Now, but now add discretion by the umpire, then the, the, and the discretion basically changes with, with bias, you might have the situation where pitchers try to play it safe when judged by a biased umpire. So if I'm Hispanic and, uh, and the, the, the umpire is Hispanic, I know that it's going to be more likely to call shots in my favor, so I take the risk to before going with the edges and take advantage of the fact that those, those are harder to hit. Okay? And, um, and, and you find exactly that in the data. Uh, pitchers who match the umpire's race ethnicity throw more often in the red area. So, so people, when they are subject, in this case players, when they understand that they're, they're the biased system and understand that the, the, the potential judges are biased, they will change strategically their behavior to adapt to that, incorporating the costs and benefits of, 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 of taking risks in this particular example. Okay? There's two lessons uh, from, from, from this. The first one is that, I already emphasized this, that, uh, is that incentives can, can affect biased behavior. Uh, they can actually completely reverse it, uh, turning a bias into affirmative action, if you, if you think of it that way. But also, because behavior adapts strategically in the, in the presence of bias, productivity measures are biased. You cannot trust a measure of the productivity of a white pitcher and a Hispanic pitcher and, and interpret them as differences in their underlying ability, say. So suppose that most umpires in the, in, in the, in the league are, are white, then white pitchers will make more often uh, hard-to-hit throws um, and will have a higher productivity as a result. Okay? So, so, the, the product, and, and they, so in a setting like this, even if all pitchers have the same underlying ability, White pitchers are going to look better in, in any measured uh, dimension that you want to that you want to uh, that you consider. So the the substitute pitchers for empl employees substitute uh, Hispanic and and white for male and female, and you can see immediately that the, the, these these changes in strategic behavior have consequences in other settings if you're willing to extrapolate. Okay, um, now. This is, this, is, this is a sport, uh, and uh, incentives seem to matter. Uh, we started this conversation by, by thinking about the, the biases in economic exchange. In economic exchange, there are embedded incentives because people engage in economic exchange for a gain. Uh, the, if in economic exchange these incentives are, are embedded in the, in the transaction, now the question is whether bias survives in such, in such settings. Okay? <clears throat> so now comes the question of how to construct a counterfactual in such an exchange setting. There are several ways to do it. Uh, I'm going to first present 
uh, a, a brute force example, which is called an audit study, and then I'm going to talk about a natural experiment, which is my, my paper, and with that I will finish. So one possibility of studying discrimination in the marketplace is an audit study. This is a paper, an early paper by Ayres and Siegelman, uh, that is entitled Race and Gender Discrimination in Bargaining for a New Car, and this is how an audit study of this subject would work. You recruit a pair, a pairs of testers, okay, one of one of the uh, one of whom is always a white male, and um, you train each pair with identical bargaining strategies, okay, and then you send these pairs to independently, of, of course, uh, to negotiate for the purchase of a new car at a randomly selected, in their case, uh, Chicago dealer. And uh, you make sure that they, they bargain for the same car and in the same dealership and then make comparisons on the price that each of these two, uh, receive, uh, two of the pair receive. Okay? What they find is that they find evidence of, of gender and race discrimination. Dealers quoted on average, significantly lower prices to white males than the prices that they quoted to black or female test, test buyers. And again, because, because the, 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 the two auditors or, or are, have been trained exactly with the same uh, criteria and spiel, the, the difference has to come from the fact that they, are, uh, that, you know, that, that they have different gender or different race. Um, now, now there's a question of how you interpret this. In economic settings, you need to be, so far I haven't made this distinction because, because it's less, less relevant, but once you are adding uh, the, the possibility that, that people have gains from this transaction, but specifically from this transaction, they, you need to evaluate uh, the, the, the results, uh, whether the interpretation depends on whether the, 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 the potentially on, on two distinct models of, of how discrimination can, can happen. The earliest economic analysis of, of discrimination, that's due to Becker, uh, he described something that was called taste-based discrimination, simply that, that people have a taste for discrimination, or in particular, they, have, they receive a utility cost, a disamenity value, of engaging in exchange uh, with a party of a minority or people from a certain ethnicity, cultural background, or gender. Okay? So it's somehow ingrained in your preferences that you don't like transacting with, uh, with certain people with certain backgrounds or that belong to some gender or a certain ethnicity. That's taste-based discrimination. Statistical discrimination, it's a, it's a more modern uh, description of what uh, the economics of discrimination uh, due to Phelps and Arrow. And there, discrimination arises because agents uh, use easily observable characteristics uh, such as race or gender, uh, to try to infer the expected profitability of a transaction. Okay? And, um, and these, two, these two models, uh, although they, they're almost impossible to distinguish empirically, uh, they have completely different implication, uh, implications uh, uh, for economic outcomes and policy prescriptions. Let me give you, go back to the, the car sale example and, and just walk through the two interpretations. Suppose we wanted to give the car sale example the test-based interpretation. Well, the argument would be the dealers, they derive this utility when transacting with black or with female buyers, and, um, and as a result, they, they just don't want to close transactions with them. They just quote them higher prices. Okay? This, type of, this, is, this type of behavior we find it unfair, odious even, 
Uh, it's illegal in most settings, uh, but it's also inefficient. And I say but because if it's, an if it's inefficient from an economic perspective, it should not survive in equilibrium. Well, all you need is a bunch of non-biased auto dealers to come in the market, and it will have no, this type of bias will have no impact on the, the, the population of buyers, uh, of car buyers in Chicago in this particular case. Okay? Statistical discrimination, what would be the story in that case? Well, he, let's, let's assume that based on the history of past transactions, pa, pa, past, past deals, um, the, the, the dealer infers that black and female buyers have a higher willingness to pay. And in bargaining for the price of a car, you know, you, you, you ask for a higher price for those people that you think might have a higher willingness to pay. Um, and, uh, and this may or may, depending on, we don't have time to discuss what unfair means in this economic setting, but my, some people might think this is unfair. Uh, but one thing it's true is it, it is profit maximizing. So, so from the point of view of the dealer, it's profit maximizing to try to assess the, as much information as they can from the buyer in order to extract the maximum. That's their job, is to try to extract the maximum possible price. Okay? And precisely because it's profit maximizing, it's not obvious, the origins are not the same. Uh, it, it's, it's coming from purely the, the, the interest of, of being efficient at, at his job, uh, talking about the dealer. Uh, the, these forces will not be competed, this type of discrimination will not be competed away and can be actually persistent over time. The, the people always try to distinguish these stories, uh, but, and uh, in, the, in this particular paper, they show that the result that I talked about before is the same regardless of whether the dealer is black or white, uh, or it's a male or female dealer, suggesting that, that it has nothing to do with a pairwise, uh, you know, uh, gender animus uh, or, 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 uh, or, or ethnicity animus, but nevertheless, um, it, it, it's, it's suggestive that this is statistical discrimination, but, but, but at the end of the day, it's impossible to tell uh, for sure unless you observe the preferences of the dealers and their expectations and their beliefs about the willingness to pay of all the, of all the buyers. Okay? So now this brings me to the final, to the final question. Um, suppose that set aside for a second statistical discrimination, and uh, let's go back to the question of economic exchange. In, uh, in sports and in the, in the setting, the sale price of a car, these are all zero-sum games. The, 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 especially in the setting, the price of a car, whatever price, higher prices paid by the, lower prices paid by the, by the buyer, it's a price received by the dealer. There's no way to improve, the car is already there, there's no way to improve um, the, the size of the pie by changing this margin. What happens if culture may affect the size of the pie? What, might, what happens if culture can change the potential gains from the interaction, from the economic interaction? It leads to, and that's, that's what we're going to argue in, the, in this paper, it leads to a, a host of other considerations that have, are ignored by, by the previous work. Um, to summarize the, the kind of the setting, the, the, there is a bright side and a dark side of, of culture in the setting. We've, we've talk, talked exclusively about discrimination, but there's a positive side now. Because if people of the same culture, two Hispanic uh, people can communicate better, assess their trustworthiness in an easier manner, or ensure enforcement of contracts better, the, the, then there is a good reason for two people that are culturally close to each other to transact. Okay? 
Um, of course, there's a negative side to this, which, which you know, the, the, I might want to interact with another Hispanic person because the, the, I, you know, because of animals, because I just like dealing with other Hispanics and I don't like dealing with white people. Okay. Um, so the question is, is it possible to distinguish the, this pernicious impact of favoritism from this efficiency-enhancing uh, effects of better communication of information? And that's where this uh, uh, paper comes, from, comes in. Um, the question we're going to ask is whether shared codes, language, religious beliefs, ethnicity between a loan officer and a borrower uh, lead to better lending decisions. Not just more lending, but better lending decisions. The setting is a large government bank in India. Uh, we have data for over 2,000 branches um, and uh, personal loans to uh, almost 3 million borrowers uh, between 1999 and 2005. And the setting has three features that allow us to answer this, this counterfactual question in an appropriate manner. The first is that, is that we have, the data is dyadic by nature. We, we know the religion and the caste of all the borrowers and all the loan officers in this setting. The, this allows us to, to test whether people deal, or to at least measure whether people deal with, uh, with other people like themselves along some dimensions uh, in, in a different way than when they deal with outsiders or people that look, don't look like them. There's uh, the second uh, important thing is that we have data not only on the loan characteristics but on the ex-post loan performance. And by following performance, it's exactly the way in which we intend to measure quality. So, so more lending, the in, more indiscriminate lending is typically accompanied by worse performance. Uh, if, we, if we find that performance improves, it would be a, a sign that, that indeed um, uh, proximity, cultural proximity might lead to, to better interaction. And then finally, for to, to, to construct the counterfactual, we need something that matches borrowers and lenders that's not uh, driven exclusively by the profitability of the transaction. And this bank has a geographic rotation policy that basically moves loan officers around. Uh, every three years, the, if you, this, is, this is the map of India. Each of the blue dots represents a location of, 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 the, of the 2,000 branches of the bank. Uh, once an officer reaches the, the, the th three years in a branch, he's moved away to another branch in the country, which on average is, is 200 kilometers away. Uh, so it's most likely that when they arrive in that branch, they don't know anyone in the setting and, um, and they don't know anyone in the village they're being assigned to. Okay? And they, the, the modal branch in, 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 this, in this setting has just one loan officer. They, it's a tiny branch in the middle of nowhere. Okay? So the, the loan officer has full control. Rotation, how, what's, what is it that we intuitively that we intend to measure? We, we suppose there's a branch of this bank where there's a Hindu loan officer. Uh, for simplicity, assume there's only three groups that, they, that this officer lends to, Hindu, Muslim, and Parsi. The, the Hindu officer, uh, the Hindu borrowers uh, have an in-group um, officer in place uh, in the first period. Rotation happens, the Hindu officer is taken away, a, Par a Parsi officer substitutes him, and uh, after the change, then you, the Parsi borrowers have an in-group borrower, and they, the, the Hindu and Muslim uh, have an outside, uh, out-group uh, officer. And you see that they, for, for Parsi borrowers, for example, they transition from having an out-group uh, officer to an in-group one around the transition. 
if, if it's true that the quantity and quality of transactions increase, we should see that for this particular branch and for this particular group of borrowers, we should see that the amount of lending increases and the quality of lending also increases if, if, if proximity um, enhances uh, the, the, the efficiency of the transaction. Hindu borrowers are in the opposite uh, situation in this example. They start from having an in-group officer and they go to having an out-group officer. Uh, so we should see things moving in the opposite direction. And then finally, Muslim uh, uh, borrowers in this group serve as a control. They experience a change in the, in the loan officer, but the, the, the cultural distance uh, between them and the officer doesn't change. This plots uh, lending to take all the data that, uh, that, that we have and organize it in an event study way around the times of transitions, dividing borrowers into, into four groups, depending on whether they transition from out-group to in-group, from in-group to out-group, or whether their in-group or out-group status doesn't change. The, the two plots on the left are those, for those borrowers that experience around the transition a change in the, in the, in the in-group status. The horizontal axis measures quarters since the, the change in the officer, where zero is, is the, the first quarter the, officer, the new officer arrives. The vertical axis measures the share of lending to that group of borrowers that experience the, the change in in-group status. So the blue line dashed uh, are those that experience a change from out-group to in-group. So these are borrowers like the parses in this setting. They started with, a, with, a, with an officer that didn't belong to their group. The, there's, a board, there's an officer, that, that person is substituted with a Parsi officer. The Parsi officer arrives, and what you can see is that lending uh, to that group of borrowers goes up. Borrowers in the opposite situation experience an immediately declining lending, those that transition from in-group to out-group, suggesting that in quantities you'd see immediately and without doing any fancy, anything fancy with the data, you immediately see these changes in the, in the, in the quantity of transactions. For the control groups, for these groups that do not experience a, a, a change in the, in the group identity of the, of the, of the officer, uh, there's just no change in, uh, in the level of lending. Okay? So it's first result number one, lending does increase when your cultural proximity <clears throat> to, to, the, to the lender increases. Um, we do this with a with nine group definitions, we have uh, Hindu borrowers are classified in four government sanctioned castes, uh, and the other five religions that we consider are Muslim, Christian, Sikh, Parsi, and Buddhist. So in total, we have nine groups. Imagine this experiment I just, uh, this, this exercise I just described, but you know, using nine groups uh, over all transitions in the data. And what we find is indeed that, that lending to in-group borrowers increases. When, uh, when in a branch, uh, the, the, a Muslim borrower, a Muslim loan officer arrives, lending to Muslims goes up. Uh, there's more new borrowers uh, that, are of the, uh, that are of the same group as the, as, the, as, the, as the officer, and there's a larger impact uh, to groups that are smaller. Okay? To distinguish between favoritism or information, we need to look at default, and we find that even though there's more lending, in-group borrowers also default less. There's more lending, lower defaults, and uh, they also continue to default less after that in-group officer leaves, suggesting that this is something permanent, that this is potentially related to the selection of the, uh, of the high quality or high 
creditworthiness uh, borrowers at the time of the in-group offers that arrives. Collateral drops, suggesting that the, that the in-group officer knows that, that he's selecting better borrowers. And uh, all these results put together are, are consistent with the, with, the idea, with the notion or with the hypothesis that, that cultural proximity uh, improves uh, the quality of lending decisions. Okay? The lessons from this exercise are, are, are the first that the results are consistent with this bright side of, of culture. Um, loan officers make more, better uh, uh, loans to borrowers who belong to the same group. Now, the, the, despite this, the bright interpretation, the, this result implies, it implies that there will be less lending to minorities. Okay? Even, if, even if minorities and large groups are, are, based, are the same on average quality uh, um, uh, across them, the, a minority group borrower has a low probability of encountering a minority officer uh, when he or she goes to ask for a loan. Which means that then, the, just because he belongs to the only, for the, exclusively for the reason of belonging to a minority group, the average amount of, 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 of lending to minority groups is going to be lower. Okay? Um, so the, the, this might look like discrimination. It, it might look like minorities have been discriminated against if we ignore the data, in the data, if we ignore the group, the identity of the, of the officer doing the lending. Now, but it might also, the, the default results, again, even though they're good, it just seems that cultural proximity leads to better outcomes, the default results imply that this type of phenomenon might lead to statistical discrimination of minorities. Why? Because minorities are also more likely to default. They, even if they're ex ante all the same, when a minority, minority borrowers approach loan officers, loan officers that are, do not belong to their group cannot distinguish the good paying versus the bad paying. In expectation, minority borrowers are going to default more. And if you, again, if you ignore the data on who made the loans, you might conclude that minority borrowers are worse. Okay? Even though, the, 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 as I said, they were identical exanta. Once you conclude minority borrowers are worse, you're back to, I said at the beginning, ignore statistical discrimination for a second, but now it might arise as a consequence of, uh, of this type of, of phenomena we're describing. So, the implications for this are, are, are twofold. The, the first one, it, it reinforces the view that productivity measures may be biased. In this example, we're talking about the, the perceived measured creditworthiness of different borrowers, groups of borrowers based on the past history of, of repayment of the group they belong to. Um, but now, in this setting, it's, it's not even necessary for agents to act strategically in response to these biases, like in the pictures example. It just simply by being selected in a different way might lead to observed biases. Okay? So again, you need to be careful with observed measures when you're trying to assess uh, or to, you're trying in an environment that potentially is, there's, there's, there are biases against certain groups, women, minority, etc. You need to be careful about how you evaluate uh, performance because these performance measures may be biased. And the second, the policy prescription in this case is, is very straightforward. Uh, albeit controversial, but, but straightforward. In situations where you, where you have minority groups that need to be evaluated, screened, 
um, uh, in, in, a, in a potentially efficiency-enhancing uh, transaction, you want minority representations of the positions of, of the, uh, that are doing the screening. In the India example, you want to have Muslim uh, loan officers in places where there are more Muslims so that they can evaluate the performance of the, of the, of the borrowers better. Of course, they, this, this, there's still a ton of, of, of questions that remain unanswered. The, this paper just scratches the surface on, on what drives the in-group advantages. Uh, it's impossible to know whether it's language, family background, or even taste-based discrimination. I mean, the, the, there, is, there, is a, there is one way to explain these results through taste-based discrimination. For example, I, I'm Hispanic. I like to spend more time with Hispanic people when I interview them to, uh, to give them a loan. And as a byproduct of spending more time with them, I might just learn more from them. So it's, it's, the, the results of this paper don't, don't they can't even rule out uh, taste-based discrimination. Uh, they just point to the possibility that, that the, the, as a byproduct of, of, of the cultural proximity, uh, uh, you can have better information and better outcomes. Okay? Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, Daniel. So uh, we'll take a few questions. Do you prefer to take one at a time or blocks? I think in a small audience, we'll probably just take one at a time. Yeah. One at a time, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. One at a time. Any questions? Nobody's got any questions? Sure. It's perfect. Well, I ran, super clear. I ran the finance department for many years, in a, in a sense. I never recruited anybody like myself. What does that tell us? Is that, is it, what does that mean? You're all foreigners, people like you. Your incentives, your incentives were... You're all wrong. Yeah. Okay, uh, Peter. Uh, so I was just wondering that, so in this, this particular example, uh, you are very serious to have scripture views that you need nine of these instead of one in each of these So I was wondering that whether you can end up back on the end of the category that there is a burden, that there is an efficiency gain, and that there is an opportunity to pay for what, what you can do is, um, so the answer is definitely no. In these in this villages where there's only one, the, the branch is run by one officer, they, it's, there's just not, not enough borrowers uh, to deal with this. But, but for sure, what we would like to do is instead of randomizing where you send the officers, you would want to send, you just look at the population, if in that area, you know, the half of the population just happens to be an area where half of the population is, is Muslim or Parsi, you want to make sure that you send Muslim guys there. It could be that, you know, you are harming the, 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 the Hindus, but, but at, at least it would be fair to, you know, swing back and forth between Muslims and, and Hindu officers instead of sending a Parsi, which won't understand anyone. Oh, but if you have, like, one well, Hindu for three years, there's a person he wouldn't randomly assign. Wouldn't you just be assign a Hindu to a Hindu? If you yeah, you have to you have to switch because if you have if you have only one officer, then yeah. you know. For fairness, I guess you want to switch between the majority groups in the in the place. But you know, yeah. There's a calculation to be made, but you know. 
So there's there's payday lenders uh, operating here in in London that they um, they uh, well in the old model before before the the, uh, the 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 industry was heavily regulated last year they they the one of the models of delivering uh, credit to to immigrants was to basically have offices in places where there are lots of immigrants and the payday lenders would hire in, if it's an area where there are lots of Polish immigrants, they would hire Polish-speaking loan officers. Uh, and, um, and if there's a, an area where there are lots of Pakistani immigrants, they would hire Pakistani. But now these are larger branches, so, but the composition of the branches was uh, mimicked exactly the composition of the population. And it was different neighborhood by neighborhood in, in London. Uh, and that's what you would like to do. In this example, with this one-person branches, you know, there's, not, there's not, not much leeway, but in the organizational design... Uh, in a setting like like the one I just described, it's it's very easy to to hit the target, right? So, but you're right that there's a there's a you know there's a trade-off. Are there any other questions? Surely there must be a question. Oh, good. Okay. Can you have the microphone, please, just to make sure we can hear the question. I would like to ask, would it really help to mitigate this, the risk of bias, like the, the choice of the officer, the, the human interaction? If we, if we use more regulation in terms of the, the hard facts, so you, you put your information in like on, a, on a form and hiding your personal details, would that really help to mitigate that risk of bias? So instead of applying for a loan officer, I will apply in the system and let the KYC information, like uh, I provide my data, my information, my collaterals, and would that really help, you know, mitigate the, the risk of bias? I'm not sure if I phrased my, my question really as I wanted, but let's say now we have the machine learning and all these IT stuff and everything that we can do without a human interaction. Would that be a revolution to mitigate that risk of bias? So, well, I mean, the, the, the question is, suppose, suppose you want to build the best predicting, predictive model you want, uh, the, in principle, you would like to include in the predictive model the, the ethnicity, the gender, and all these cultural traits, traits of, the, of, the, of the borrowers in the model. Now, this is dangerous because it leads to statistical discrimination, right? So um, the, in the U.S., for example, this is forbidden. You cannot put race or ethnicity in, in, a, in a scoring model. Uh, you cannot even put a zip code, which is a, a, a larger version of a, of a postal code, in, in scoring models because people tend to concentrate, people of the similar ethnicity tend to concentrate in, in, in some areas. Uh, so this would be kind of a shortcut to do, and they call it redlining. Um, so the, the, with, with machine learning, the, the there's, there's a ton of information that would, I, mean, I guess, the danger if you think that this is an unfair outcome, that you are discriminated, statistically discriminated against uh, because of your background, um, then what machine learning is, is, is going to be extremely difficult to regulate this. Uh, if the, the, with machine, but nowadays, uh, lenders are using the typos that you make in applications or the words that you use as a metric of, of your the, 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 these things actually seem to correlate well with the fault probability. 
Uh, you put that in the model, and, and you can get a long way of, of reducing the human factor, but this is, would not eliminate statistical discrimination. Statistical discrimination is by nature is going to capture anything that predicts the fault, and if it happens that you being Hispanic predicts the fault, it's going to be in the model. Uh, so it, it depends on the objective. Um, but, but as I said, statistical discrimination is it's extremely difficult to get rid of. Uh, you, can, you can try to get rid of it by fiat, like in the US, you, you cannot put race in the, in the scoring model. Uh, I think, these, I think these, the, these attempts to regulate this by fiat, once you have big data and you can get at this information it's through other ways, it's, are, are going to be very limited in, in preventing statistical discrimination. A different question is you want to prevent statistical discrimination at all. As I said, it's efficient for, it's not great for the person that's being discriminated against, but especially if you are a borrower that has good quality, but happens to be of a, you know, happens to be Hispanic or happens to be black, and, and Hispanics and, and, and blacks default more, um, a, you're, you, you're going to be, you're going to face, just because you're Hispanic or black, you're going to face higher cost of borrowing. Uh, and that's unfair for, for the good guys, but, but it's efficient. So in, in that balance, it, again, it, it's, it's again of a measure of you know, cost and benefits, and it's hard to measure. Yeah. John? John. John. from the previous one. I'm just trying to figure out the boundaries of what you're saying. So if you run a big data model on use on, 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 on borrowers, on, on outcomes of lending, and you're looking at factors like race and things like that, what is it about the big data algorithm that still is sensitive to these factors? So, so I would think that something must be missing in the model of the data that that is because if you have completely equivalent people of different ethnicities, they should have exactly the same possibility of, or same probability of paying. So what, what, what is it about the, this algorithm? What, what do they miss in your, in your view? Or what explains this, the, the fact that you still get statistical discrimination? I don't know. I mean, nobody knows. The, the, and in fact, when people do these big data models, the whole point is not to know. Just let the data tell you what predicts and what doesn't, right? So the, the, there could be an attempt in a, you know, as these models become much more and more popular for evaluating credit risk, they, 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 there, should be, there should be an attempt by economists to understand what these predictive factors imply. And we have a, we have a good sense of why race potentially predicts default probability. Uh, in the U.S., right? So they, they, they're typically disadvantaged backgrounds. They, they're discriminated against in the, in, the, in the workplace. There are many dimensions along which to people that may have, have the same observables, they, they're just going to be facing different exposure to shocks, probability of getting fired, etc. cetera. Uh, other dimensions like, you know, the words that you use, whether you use uh, kind of a classic one is do you type your application on, with the caps lock on? That's a really bad idea, right? If you type your application with the caps lock on to a bank with an online loan, the algorithm is going to pick that up and it's going to either reject you because who, who writes with the caps lock on? Uh, uh, but, it just, uh, but the algorithm picks it up because it's correlated with default, not because there's a judgment of it's wrong to write with the caps lock on. It's because his, when you look at two years of data, people that write the application with the caps lock on that happens to predict more default, conditioning everything else. 
right? So same income, same, same, same score, credit score, same everything. Somehow, caps lock on has an extra predictive power of default, and, and that could be related to education. It could be related to many things, right? But uh, the economic interpretation of why each of these variables ends up predicting default, it's, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an arduous task because there are many, by definition of this big data approach, there are many variables that predict. So. And it's, it's an interesting question for the future, but we don't know. Any more? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, um, if I understood your result correctly, the first best outcome is to, for example, use Chinese loan officers to assess Chinese loan markets. But suppose, for some reasons, this is impossible. Uh, what is your uh, sort of second best outcome? Should we use, in your five country example, should we use the most trusting loan officer to assess the loans or? Should we use the most uh, skeptical loan officers to assess the loans? So, so I, I didn't. I mean, we didn't. We didn't show. I didn't show you results on that. But the the in a sense, the analysis was a very was very simplistic in the sense that they, I, we only looked at whether you your group identity matches with that of the officer. Uh, but you, with nine groups. I basically, with nine groups, imagine a matrix of ident group identities of the borrowers and group identities of the, of the officers. I've only shown you the diagonal. There could be groups that act like, you know, that basically are not discriminating at all, right? So it could be that, that, in, that in that matrix there's some, there's some groups that, that are better than others at evaluating because they're, they're better evaluators because they're training, they're, they're culture, whatever it is. So there are ways to, to do a better job. If you wanted to go down this line, uh, you can even estimate these cross-group proficiencies in evaluating, and, uh, and you, can, you, can, you can improve on this. Um, but, but, you know, we, it requires more, more work. Yeah. Okay. Well... Thank you very much, Daniel. Thanks to all for coming.